0: You know, that that old saying, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a a nail. If you only as a, a leader have one way that you approach those conversations, it ultimately isn't going to be as positive or impactful in a broad range of settings.
1: Welcome to episode number 83. This might be episode number 84 because we, we've got a surprise guest that we want on the show. So you'll know, forgive me if this is 80, actually number 84. Uh, but this is the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andy Tempty. Today we've got Bessie Graham joining us as the third guest in our mini-series on the topic of challenging conversations and constructive feedback. Bessie is co-founder of Benefit Capital and is also the host of Both and with Bessie Graham podcast. Bessie's joining us today from Melbourne, Australia. Thank you so much for your contributions, Bessie. Thank you. It's really lovely to be with you. Yes, yes. So before we get started, I always ask this question. It would be great if you told our listeners your story.
0: Sure. The um One of the pieces that I'm really excited about talking with you about that connects to my story is that as you have framed in your podcast this idea of these positionings between ideas like strength and vulnerability, leadership and followership, those types of uh, challenges and sitting with those two spaces really um, resonates strongly with me because Holding that gray area and sitting in the messy middle, those pieces of contradictions and things that uh, people don't think sit nicely together. That's kind of who I am and who I've always been. So as a kid, I always said I was a walking contradiction, and i I actually think that's my superpower. So both as a leader and as a human, sitting with these things and and embracing contradiction and paradox is, just something that, that comes naturally to me. So if we go back to my childhood, I had the really incredible privilege of having parents who had amazing friends. And uh, I remember as an adult reading Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, and realizing, oh, when we think of this concept of no one is a self-made person, while my parents didn't give me financial advantage or wealth they gave me an incredible network of their friends and the influences that kind of shaped who I am. So I, I grew up sitting at the feet of an incredible group of men that were really had these amazing minds and were thinking about and leading from a place of these philosophical and theological sort of explorations, if you like. And so I always have been someone that's curious and asking lots of questions and wanting to understand people and situations and what makes people tick. So I, I went on and, and from an early age had this obsession around leadership and that's sort of been in me since I was a kid. I studied politics and international relations, and my um, my master's was actually focused on counterterrorism. So, looking at okay. people and what, <laughs> yeah, looking at people and what makes them tick, and and how do we influence and and shape ideas, really is is part of that exploration for me. So, I think that the the story, if you like, and some of those common themes that then lead into what I've done in my career are those aspects of being intuitive and insightful and and brave enough to not be worried what people think, which didn't, you know, go down very well as a kid at school. Teachers weren't a great fan of that, (laughs) Uh, you know, the questioning of authority. But I think that that plays into some of the explorations we're having today around that ability to not just think that with position means automatic authority or respect, but that, actually judging character and having to earn that is something that I've, I've been keenly aware of since I was young. Yeah, so as we awesome. kind of, yeah, then move into the, yeah. the aspects of after studying leadership and things, equally, there was this passion around a commitment to want to make a contribution to make the world a better place, really. And so for me, the the way that that has played out is through a love of business and seeing business as a way to really have a powerful impact in the world. And so I'm always looking for those win-win situations, which meant that when I explored sort of the nonprofit charitable world, I wasn't a natural fit to just sit in that box because there's a bunch of you know scarcity mindset and different things that didn't sit well with me. But equally, I didn't fit just going into government or politics. So business has really been my fascination and the platform where I've been able to merge these ideas of leadership and contribution and shaping what that looks like. And it's meant that I've then had a fascinating journey as a serial entrepreneur, building different businesses in that vein of figuring out and helping other business leaders figure out what it would look like. To do good and make money in the same business model, and that is the common theme across the different businesses that I've built.
1: That is uh, that is fantastic. Uh, you you mentioned Malcolm Gladwell and the book Outliers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's uh, got this. He's got a podcast called Revisionist History, which which I love. Uh, yes, and uh, in in the latest season, he uh, looked back at Outliers and uh, revised. Uh, uh some of that so if you if you can go yes. if, if you haven't listened to that episode yet it's uh, it's uh, it, it's fascinating to yeah. uh, listen to him talk about um, it was the, you know the Canadian hockey teams and who's who are the best players and mm-hmm. uh, you know gifted and talented programs and it turns out that the older kids <laughs> uh were the ones that uh, were the most gifted and talented it's yeah. fa- fascinating stuff. It is, yeah. If you had to pick one event in your life that just put rocket boosters under your career, what would that be?
0: So it would be when I was a teenager, I think I was maybe 14 or 15. I was at an event at my school, sitting in the library, and someone who was actually a friend of my parents was speaking. And I was sitting there listening to him and he was... He ran one of the, well, the first ethical investment advisory firms in Australia. So in the the early days of people starting to both negatively and positively screen what they were investing in, where their money was at work in the world. Mm -hmm. And I sat there as a teenager who had all those pieces I just told you about my uh, questioning and wanting to contribute. So I was quite fascinated. And as he spoke, the piece that stuck with me and, and really sparked my curiosity was that he said even if you are in a context where you earn an average wage you're not a high net worth individual you're not from wealth over the course of your life at least 2 million dollars will pass through your hands as you just are on that that basic average wage and so you have to start to think about that's actually significant money that that you will have influence over? And what do you want to do with that? And as someone who didn't come from a family that had a lot of money, suddenly hearing, you know, that big number and going, "Ooh, that's interesting. What what would that look like? And how could you not feel like you had to wait till you had a massive bucket of money to make a difference, but to think about the little things, to think about the bank that you put your savings with and what they're doing with that money. To think about the companies you buy things from and what their supply chains look like. So it would be that conversation and listening to him and hearing these examples that started to show me that this idea of not having to choose one, that I didn't have to go into a career and and think that there was one choice, but to start to go, okay, whether I end up incredibly wealthy or I don't. I want to be intentional about what I am part of creating in the world through that that money that's coming through my hands. So, so Trevor Thomas and that conversation in the library at school would be that moment for me.
1: Uh, that's, that's just wonderful. Um, I, I, have a, I have a rock band uh, on, on the side. Uh, Nick, Nick and I write original music, and our motto is rocking out and doing good. Uh, And we, and, and you can, I I just love your message that you don't have to have this big pool of money to make a difference. And, and the lesson for individuals, you know, early on in their career, that if you're intentional, you can start to make a difference now, instead of waiting, you know, for some big, uh, big moment uh, to happen. And, you know, that's how we all uh, we're all going to uh, make our existence on this pale blue dot uh, a, a better thing. And it's also a more honest
0: reflection of what will play out in your life. Because if you are doing those things when you don't have a lot of money, then as you have more money, that is how you're already behaving. That's how you're already thinking and spending your your money. Or, you know, I like people to think more broadly than money and think of their use of time, talent and treasure. Right. But When you start to do that early, it means that as you do come into positions of more authority, more influence or more capital, you can just grow what you're already doing rather than have this very unrealistic expectation that one day I'll be generous or one day I'll be thoughtful, do that now and then let it grow over time.
1: Yeah, avoiding those big ta-da moments uh, because those big moments uh, rarely pan out to... Very rarely be uh, be what you imagine them to. So uh, let's dive into the topic at hand, mm-hmm. challenging conversations. Can you help us understand your approach to delivering constructive feedback and engaging in those difficult conversations? Yeah.
0: Look, the the honest answer is that it's shifted and changed over time. I think there is an element of maturity and practice that happens as a leader. And so there's some pieces where you look back and go, oh goodness, that wasn't that wasn't a great uh, way to have that constructive uh, <laughs> criticism type of conversation. And so I think one of the pieces that I, I just want to start with is that to give a sense of, of my natural tendency and personality and then talk you through what my approach has become. I'm someone who was always sort of labelled as a truth teller, or I was able to, when I was working with businesses, I would tell someone if their baby was ugly, you know, use those kinds of frames of, um, or hold people in a headlock when they needed to take issues on head on. So quite aggressive language of framing how I would get to a good outcome. And I think while that worked to a certain extent, and I did get, good results and could draw out people's brilliance the the aspect of starting to become aware that you know that that old saying if all you have is a hammer everything looks like mm-hmm. a, a nail yep. if you only as a, a leader have one way that you approach those conversations or that you give that feedback and and engage around that it it ultimately isn't going to be as positive or impactful in a broad range of settings. And so one of the, the moments that then really helped give me a, a shift in perspective and a framework that I then used around what my approach with those difficult conversations and the constructive criticism was that I read an article many years ago that Elizabeth Gilbert wrote, and I ended up sharing it with my team at the time because the thing that caught me was she talked about people who, give, who say that they are brutally honest And that was something that I used to refer to myself as. But she talked through these four questions that someone had to ask themselves before they actually took on someone's advice. And so I shared it with my team and I said, we need to use this as our new starting point to actually reframe what has to be in place before we give feedback or this constructive criticism. So the four pieces, I'll just quickly run you through them that she framed for someone to ask themselves was do I trust the taste and judgment of the person giving this feedback? Do they understand what I'm actually trying to create was the second. The third was around, do they genuinely want me to succeed? And the fourth was, are they capable of delivering that feedback in a sensitive and compassionate way? And when I read those, I went, ah, if I reframe that, And I actually come at these conversations and giving this constructive criticism from a place that says, I haven't earned the right to do that unless I've set those conditions and the other person feels that way. So it's not about me projecting what I think is needed, but it's about creating those conditions where the person actually has come to a place where they do trust my taste and judgment, where they actually feel deeply seen and and that I have understood what they are trying to achieve and that I, not just from a a surface level way, but I'm really committed to them succeeding in that and I've figured out how to deliver that feedback in that way that is sensitive and compassionate. Now, I don't mean in that, that I suddenly didn't have difficult conversations or was soft on things where there needed to be firmness. But that reframe was incredibly helpful in terms of becoming more effective in how that feedback was received. And it's just a more respectful way to to do it if if you um if you want to be honest. Uh, so that's sort of that's how I would describe my approach to those conversations, particularly over, say, the last ten years.
1: yeah, i'll I'll pick up on the word compassion, uh, mm. you know compassion defined as empathy plus a willingness and ability to do something uh, about it and be able to detach uh, from that so uh, you know that's being important. having compassion by that definition in a difficult conversation uh you know that that's that's going to go such a long way so thank thank you for uh bringing that uh that out now mm-hmm. in in your work at Benefit Capital, you see all sorts of folks in entrepreneurs and, and startups. Uh, how does the ability to have what some call frank and fearless conversations add value to the clients that, uh, that you're working with?
0: Yeah. So I think it is that piece of if we, if we be honest about the fact that not every idea is a good idea. <laughs> or sometimes the idea is good, but that is not the right team to deliver on it, yeah. it's actually not compassionate or caring or helpful to just always give positive reinforcement of a person or an idea. If, there's, if there are things that you have seen, and this comes down to that piece of if you've actually um, created the experience that now deserves to be listened to from a feedback perspective, I've been doing this work for over 20 years in this space and so I have seen patterns and I can anticipate things that might happen that someone who's in a startup, who's just had an idea and is jumping in may not have the benefit of that. So I think it goes back to some of those roots of what I talked about that are my natural kind of strengths of being brave enough to say things even if they aren't what someone wants to hear. But it's about the first part of that engagement being a respectful giving of space to learn and understand what the person is saying. I think one of the pieces that I very intentionally make sure I bring when I'm working with an organisation is not to just barge in there with my off-the-shelf solution that I've already decided what you need and my you know I have this program or this thing, and it will be the answer to whatever your problem is. It's the approach that says, I need to listen and understand what it is you're trying to do. My job is to bring uh, i I stole this off my my partner Brad, but he always talks about when you're doing this work, the business or the the leader that you're working with, they bring content. My job is to bring form. So I will ask questions. I will bring, I don't have to understand every aspect of your business or be deeply aware of manufacturing if that's what you do. That's not my job. You're bringing content, I bring form. And so I think this approach that says, how do I take the time to know and understand the person and the business is central. And then how do I actually sit back long enough to earn the right to speak into that space and to create those conditions that we talked about in terms of those four questions. I think the other piece, I'm not sure if you're um, a fan of uh, BJ Fogg's work around tiny habits, but I loved in his framework when he talks about for action to actually occur and behaviour to change, we need to understand the dance that's going on between fear and hope Mm-hmm. And I think that that piece is really strong that it doesn't actually matter um, if you just come in with something that you as an outsider see as a great solution to someone's problem. You have to understand and work with them so that their hope is strong enough that it outweighs the fear or else they right. won't actually change and the behavior won't stick.
1: Ah, that's a that is a wonderful balancing act. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, B- Bessie, we're, we're going to take a short break for a commercial, and uh, we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andrew Tempe. In my book, Balancing Act, Teach, Coach, Mentor, Inspire, I explore the characteristics required of leaders who must find balance between strength and vulnerability, confidence and selflessness, passion and measure, and leadership and followership. Balancing Act is available today at Amazon.com. And we're back with Bessie Graham talking about challenging conversations in the workplace. Uh, Bessie, let's run a quick thought experiment. Suppose you have an early career manager right in front of you right now who struggles to have effective, challenging conversations with their colleagues. What do you tell them? I would absolutely start
0: consistently with helping them to start to take a strengths-based approach. And when I say that, I mean related to them as a leader or a manager having these conversations, but equally to those people that they are managing or leading, depending on their, their role. And what I mean by that is that when we think of or come into these conversations, and I've talked about that need to make sure we actually have listened and we understand the person. When you have some kind of tool or framework, particularly in the early days of your career, it gives you this little bit of confidence that like, I'm not just making this up. There's some thought or structure or research behind what I'm doing that is informing how I have this conversation. So the the piece that I use, and I still use it today in my coaching when I work one on one with with different leaders, I always get them to do a basic Clifton Strengths Finder. So it's like twenty five dollars. Do the top five strengths as a mm-hmm. as an easy intro. Again, different levels of assessment um, can be helpful in different settings. But for a, a a manager coming in who's trying to just begin this process, it's a great tool to use to, if you can, my preference is that you actually get your your team to do that so that you can mm-hmm. map the team. And, and when you, even if you can't formally do the assessment itself, if you look into it for your own strengths and start to understand something like the, the Clifton Strengths Finder, and then you just observe and you will pretty much be able to hone in and, and guess at what are the strengths or the preferences of the people that you're working with, that can help shape the way you have a conversation. Because the reality is when you're managing people, we need to take each person as an individual. And if there's six people on your team, what works with one of them could be incredibly ineffective with another. And so it is this tuning in and finding whatever your tool is. Like I said, I use StrengthsFinder to the point that when I'm doing, uh, so there's an amazing program that the Obama Foundation run called the Emerging Leaders, where they pick around 32 leaders that they see are up and coming that they want to support. So I'm one of the coaches for those. And each of the leaders does StrengthsFinder. And before I have a coaching session with them, I will pull out, the little cards of what their strengths are. And I will sit there and think about what am I wanting to talk to them about today? How do I frame it and ask my questions in a way that will resonate with the way they naturally operate? So I I make the conversation be shaped to what that person's preferences are, not just me pushing my agenda. And so that is if there was only one thing I could say to an early early stage manager coming up, it would be to find some of those tools and frameworks that just allow you to, A, have a bit of added confidence that there's some rigor behind it without you having to yet have the experience yourself, but B, that it allows you to focus in on the individual and shape the conversation in a way that has the best chance of landing for that person not just about you trying to get your message across.
1: Yeah, we we are such kindred spirits in this regard. Uh, In my forthcoming book, uh, The The Balanced Business, I dedicate an entire chapter to uh, the the concept of change management and uh, and the aha moment that I'm trying to strike uh, for folks there is that uh, once you learn about change management and uh, change management curves generally, mm-hmm. then you start thinking about, oh, that human being doesn't just walk around with one change management curve. They have a whole set of change management curves that they apply to different situations. Yeah. <laughs> and And now you're a leader and you've got a team of eight. Uh, now you've got eight entire sets of change management curve curves that uh, that you have to think about and your construct of you know understanding the in, individual uh, through a strengths finder or a, or a yeah. you know, there there are many many tools so many folks, tools yeah. so many tools so many yeah uh, but but I uh, completely uh, applaud you on that uh, Bessie I, I love to talk about skills uh, on this show. Uh, you've got that same uh, uh, introductory manager right in front of you. Can you give them some, some advice on the skills that they should hone to become better at delivering uh, constructive feedback?
0: Yeah, so I think the first one is definitely listening and not listening in that way where you're just preparing what you're going to say in response. Right. But actually sitting there and taking in what someone is actually saying and and observing in not just the words they use but tune into their body language is there something going on that 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 you need to uh draw out so I think that piece of uh first bit the focusing on the other the the learning to listen and, and tune in the flip side of that again if we go to your kind of Pattern of, okay, we've got to hold these two things, is that you have to have your own self awareness. So I don't think you can lead others unless you lead yourself first. I don't think you can lead others where you have not gone. Um, My experience is definitely that with the leaders I work with, part of why they listen to me is that I have the big picture systemic experience of advising governments and doing big projects, but equally, I have for many years sat in the dirt working with business owners across the Pacific, whether it's a coconut farmer in Samoa or a coffee plantation in Papua New Guinea, and I have built my own businesses. So I am speaking from experience and I have been on a journey myself that can then, I can share that with people in a genuine and real way. So I think the the first two starting points of what kind of sits next to each other is the the listening and the drawing out and understanding the person you're engaging with. And then the second skill set is that ongoing, because you never arrive, it's an ongoing and forever journey of self-awareness and and learning and curiosity that you need to foster those, those skills. I think that's absolutely critical. I think... Another piece that's incredibly important is the skill of scenario planning. So I think when you are managing or leading, part of your job is that ability to jump forward, to anticipate, to predict, to think and be multiple steps ahead of where you are and usually multiple steps ahead of where everyone else is actually thinking and operating. And so learning to do that piece that can create a a vision or a goal and then run scenarios of what might happen. How could this play out? How would we respond? What does that look like? That skill set is a really important one, whether it's related to the scenarios of what might happen in this conversation. So you might use it to say, okay, with what I know of this person, if I present the new strategy of this company in this way, how will they respond? How will that land? So the scenarios of not just being reactive, but being quite thoughtful and running through and then finding the best approach is a really good skill to have um, in this space. And then the only other, I mean, obviously there's a lot of skills, but the other piece that I would then kind of wrap up with is the ability to know when to get out of the way. So when you're not the right person, which feeds into the knowing yourself, the self-awareness piece, but that is when I see leaders who know how to do that well, it's a beautiful thing yeah. because far too often a leader is unaware or unwilling to go, okay, I can see what's happening here or where this is going or in the, in the context of a difficult or intense conversation rather than say, I'm actually not the best person to have this conversation because sometimes you aren't. And so it's then about saying, is there someone else on the management team who would be a better fit to have this conversation with that particular person? I think the sooner we realize we are not the answer to every question and that our approach won't always be the best, uh, the more effective we will be as leaders and managers.
1: Oh, just such wonderful contributions. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Bessie. Uh, uh, just two quick questions as we close out the show. I- I'm interested in the benefit capital uh, business model. Uh, you know, before the show started, uh, we talked about the triple bottom line and uh, that that the business world is more than uh, simply profits. Uh, what is benefit capital doing there?
0: Yeah. So really, across when I think of of benefit capital. It is a step along. So rather than being working with startups or early stage pieces, it's once an organization has got to that point where actually it is investable, it is working well, it's having that impact that the triple bottom line, it's, it's doing good and making money. Benefit capital has sat in that space really in two areas. One, to then help figure out and connect those businesses with investment capital that's aligned to to what they need to scale and grow. And the other, which is where I'm most passionate, is around that creation of the environments where those businesses could flourish. So the work with governments, the work to actually say, how do we bring together the investors, the government funding, the businesses, the capacity building needed, and create those conditions so businesses can flourish. So the the business itself is still in that space I spoke about of helping people do good and make money, but there's the stepping up into more of that systemic space of creating an environment where that that can actually work well for people.
1: That's wonderful. The world needs uh, so much more of that. so thank you for doing that work. Uh, I, I we also talked before the show about your podcast, uh, both and uh, yes. and uh, during the show you alluded to a book um, uh, what what's going what's going on there? Tell us just a little bit about both and where we can yeah. find you and sure. uh, what's your book about so the the
0: focus for me moving forward for really the the rest of my career in this next chapter of my life, comes right back to that leadership space. So the passion of, of business is there, but it's about working with business leaders to help them really stop seeing the doing good pieces external to the business. I think there is so much happening in the world and business is driving a whole bunch of our economy, the impacts that it's having on people across the board And I want to come right back into, while from a benefit capital perspective or the Difference Incubator, which I founded before before that, we worked on the business model and helping you figure out the business itself. What I have learned is that if the leaders of those organizations haven't done their own personal work, it doesn't matter how great the business model is that I design with you, you will end up getting in the way and blowing it up in some some way or, or form. That's I've seen that happen far too many times. So the podcast and the book, really my desire is to change the way businesses are run. It's about helping business leaders think differently and shift into realizing they can do good now, not by having to make a donation. That's a great thing. I'm, I'm not saying people shouldn't be generous to external charities or or causes. But to bring that thinking right back inside the business and to identify what are the decisions you have control over? Where are you already spending money? It takes you right back to me sitting in the library as a teenager listening to these ideas and going, what could I help business leaders start to realise they could change now? And that if their business only ever broke even, if they never were massively profitable or sold the business and set up a foundation, even if all the business does is break even, have you made the world a better place by the decisions you're making and how you run that business, how you treat your staff, what you do with your supply chain decisions. And so that is the focus of the book and the podcast. It's the mindset shift and it's helping people start to realize their business can be this incredibly powerful platform That can allow them to achieve the freedom and and fulfillment they desire. Because if we use our business only for profit maximization, you might get financial freedom. But I have seen far too many people where then they realize this doesn't actually have any meaning or purpose to it. I don't feel that there is a satisfaction in what I'm doing. Money itself is not enough. So that is the focus of all of my work going forward with business leaders
1: can really sap the soul if the focus is solely on profits, because the sacrifices that you have Mm -hmm. to make as a leader uh, to do that, I I can directly attest uh, to this, Uh, those, those sacrifices can really, uh, really pull, pull you down. So, yeah. uh, Jesse, I, I wish we had another couple of hours to, to chat. It's been lovely, lovely to meet you. Uh, as I mentioned before the show, I have a soft spot in my heart for all things Australia because my friends uh, uh, at uh, my my former colleagues at Kaplan uh, just did great work, and uh, I I, I, w- I wish you all the best in your endeavors. My name is Andy Tempty. This is the Balancing Act Podcast. You can find us on all the major podcast services, as well as YouTube. Uh, please like, subscribe, rate, and share, especially this episode. It's going it's so impactful. Thank you, Bessie. Thank you so much.